HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. So yesterday was Earth Day, and we are going to mark the occasion with a guest who has dedicated a great deal of her career to environmental issues. I'd like to welcome to the show Paula Daniels, who is the founder of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council as well as being the Senior Fellow on Food Systems, Water, and Climate in the Office of Governor Jerry Brown. She's also recently appointed to the California State Water Commission. Paula has worked on these issues from really all sides um, and taught extensively in food policy as well, and she's also a personal friend. So, Paula, welcome back to Eating Matters. Hello, and happy day after Earth Day. And we're glad to uh, have you to talk about that. And then also, I think we're going to start with something that really goes to the crux of sustainability issues, which is the drought in California. Um, so it is now the fourth year of serious drought there with the recent annual April snow survey, which is something that measures the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada on the day of the year when it is typically at its highest. And that survey found that we were at just 5% of the historical average of snowpack in the Sierra Nevada region. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about this, um, particularly here in New York where the drought, I think, can seem, makes a lot of headlines but can seem a little more abstract to some of us. First, um, what, what are the, really the impacts there on the ground? It's not always obvious in grocery stores here, but how, do, how does the drought impacting people in California today? Yeah, I mean, it's it, the drought has become something that's on people's minds in California as much as their own jobs and uh, the economy. It's it's risen to that level, but I think the place where it's felt the most, the most in terms of immediate impacts, is in the Central Valley area, which is where, um, as you know, we grow um, over half of the nation's produce. 
I was there uh, last week uh, as part of my Water Commission responsibilities. We had a meeting in Fresno, and we had a number of um, people come testify who were part of the agricultural community, some who were part of um, agricultural boards, um, and some who were farmers, talking about the impacts on their livelihoods. So it's um, pretty significant. There are a lot of people who have been following their fields. In other words, they're not growing. There's loss of jobs. There's loss of incomes. And... On a more immediate basis, there's a number of uh, small communities in the Central Valley that are running out of water. There's areas that have already had a lot of uh, contamination of nitrates and other types of things that were a function of agriculture, uh, nitrates from cattle ranching and from other sources, but then um, some places had a lot of, were producing pesticides, so there's groundwater contamination, so there's already those issues. And now they're running out of water. I met with folks in Fresno, and um, they identified, they showed me a map and um, identified some areas where they're just a couple weeks away from not having water in certain wells. So, Paula, you're going slightly in and out, um, so I want to just encourage you to talk right into your phone so we can hear all of the great things that you're telling us about. No, I am, but I'm just wondering if it's a funny connection. I'm sorry, because I'm... Uh, Okay, no, it's it's only minor. We can hear you, but um, we're live, so just just, uh, wanted to ask you that. Um, okay. But to go back to your your time in the Central Valley. So first, in the communities where people are running out of water, I think meaning they tur- they turn on their taps and no water comes out. What are the coping mechanisms there? How do people survive with that? Uh, yeah, they're getting bottled water there. This is not unlike uh, I think it's Sao Paulo in Brazil where they're you know selling bottled water. Um, so they're getting bottled water um, and water from other sources. So they're also deferring, they're getting bottled water for drinking, but a number of the folks who came and testified explained that they're not, they're not able to take showers in those areas. And, and for the farmers that you heard from, um, how did they describe how it, how, what the drought means for them and what are some of the options that they have for contending with this? You know, a lot of the conversation is... and. Part of what I was there for was to look at um, storing water. So there's a lot of systemic issues when you're dealing with water shortages and, and, and intensive demands on water. So California has always been in that situation where we've had a lot of demands on its water um, in regions where water isn't. So most of the water in California is in the north. Most of the demand is in the Central Valley and in the south in Los Angeles where I'm living. And um, L.A. is not an area that has is high water um, in terms of supply from rains. So we've been moving water around the state for, for nearly a century now. And so a lot of the more fundamental questions come down to whether or not we can store water, and that usually means dams. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this current conversation, we're also looking at other ways to store water, which is returning it back to the groundwater and having more groundwater storage. So that was the a focus of the conversation, but some folks are also talking about our water transfers, um, where water rights are, where they aren't, where water's needed, where it isn't. Um, and I've seen some articles pointing out the fact that of the 9 million irrigated acres of uh, agricultural land that we have, um, only about 3 million of those actually produces fruits and vegetables, like something like one. Point seven, something like that, produces nuts. Those are tree crops, and then the rest produce uh, grain. So that's alfalfa. So the the biggest crops in California, and this is what you've seen some attention on, 
are alfalfa because we have a huge dairy industry here and almonds. The right. issue with the tree crops is that they are permanent, um, so they 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 function in a way that we call it hardening the water supply. So you can't fallow tree crops; you have to pull them out. You just lose them. So it's a big economic loss if they have to do that. So that's so it creates a lot of the basically less resiliency because you don't have options without a, a major sustained cost. Right. Right, because they have this investment. You have to think of it somewhat as like a capital investment. Um, they have this investment in the orchards. They want to maintain that investment, which is understandable. If you've put money into something like that and it's your livelihood, you'd want to maintain that investment. So they keep seeking out water. Whereas alfalfa, there's more alfalfa grown by acreage than the tree crops, but you can follow alfalfa, and then if it happens to rain, the alfalfa will come back. It responds pretty quickly available water. And then they can also move the cattle around. So part of what the conversation is is about storage. The other part's about water markets. The other part is about what do you do with the land that needs water but doesn't have it. It seems like, I mean, particularly something like storage is really about infrastructure. And some of these changes seem like long-term solutions. But I'm imagining that when you're hearing testimony there must be some desperation and a real sense of urgency from some of the people in the room. Um, were there examples of that that come to mind for you, and w- what's the government response to that kind of need? Well, at this point, we're spending a lot of time, um, my colleagues in the governor's office are spending a lot of time listening and, and paying attention and trying to help, but um, I think that... Um, there is a question a lot of people have raised about whether or not farmers could convert to other crops. And that's, that's a tough um, issue for farmers to grapple with. Um, many of them talked about how uh, a while ago, at the beginning of this century, a lot of land in California was in cotton, which is a very high-intensive water crop and, and much more difficult to maintain. Um, and they were convinced uh, to transition to other lower water intensive crops that had more nutritive value, and a lot of them were convinced to grow almonds. <laughs> so right. now they're growing almonds and they're getting criticism. There has been money in the Farm Bill in the past, in the 2002 Farm Bill. There was money nationally to help convert cro- uh, to lower water use crops. There's that money, that fund was eliminated in the, 20, in the recent version, in the 2014 version of the Farm Bill. So uh, it's something to think about. And one thing that I looked into myself, and this I wouldn't say this is part of the ongoing conversation, but it's something that I've wondered about, is moving to other types of production that might not require as much natural resources. And one of the things that I researched was aquaculture for that purpose. So uh, the, the so tell us, people... Yeah, tell us first what I know aquaculture is something that you've done a lot of work in, but tell us what aquaculture is in the way that um, the regular consumer sees it. Well, most people, when they think of aquaculture, think of salmon. A lot of attention was being um, placed on salmon and the salmon industry because of some of its practices of raising salmon. That's in the open ocean or net pens. So aquaculture, in short, is the farming of fish in the same way that we you know, think of agriculture as the domesticated farming of um, pro- corn, rice, wheat, whatever, crops, and ranching as cattle ranching and livestock rearing. So aquaculture is the farming of fish. 
But there's a number, the thing that's interesting about it is there's a number of production methods. So one of them is in the open ocean in cages or net pens. That's where salmon is grown. And that's received a lot of critical attention because it creates a number of problems in the aquatic environment, particularly if the stocking densities are as high as they are for industrial um, livestock rearing on land or CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations. And is that typical that that the salmon are in the way that we've seen images of what factory farms look like? Is that what some fish farms look like? Well, it had been in the past. It had been the way that it was being done uh, for the most part. So with the critical attention that was brought to it, a number of salmon farmers are changing their farming practices, but many who work in uh, ocean conservation and protection are still concerned that um, even with improvements in the farming practices, that there's still problems because of um, when you have stocking densities, you use antibiotics, and then there's escape and then parasites because the water is so it's fluid, right? It's water, but <laughs> things transmit uh, in water differently than they do on land, um, that it's problematic. So the method that I looked into was land-based aquaculture. So you also have that where you have um, fish grown in ponds and then also in tanks. And you can grow them in tanks in any setting. You could grow them in a warehouse or you could create a greenhouse. Um, many people may know about Will Allen of Growing Power in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He has um, aquaponics facilities in Wisconsin, which has extremely variable weather. As you know, it goes from very cold to hot um, over the course of a year. And he grows successfully in a greenhouse. It seems so, so counterintuitive that fish farming would be less water-intensive than other types of farming just because it involves yeah. water. So can you can you explain why that is? <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? But I looked at that. Um, I looked into it, for, uh, and when you have fish in a tank, if it's a recirculating tank, so that's a distinction. If it's a flow-through tank, it might use a lot of water. But if it's a recirculating tank, which is the direction that a lot of the, the, the tank-based farming is going, and it is what is used in aquaponics, then the water uh, is reused. It goes through a filter. Or if it's in aquaponics, then that's attached to a hydroponic system where plants are grown. So the water goes from the fish tank over to where the plants are. It, the, the, what would otherwise be called wastewater actually becomes nutrient water in the, in the uh, hydroponic area, and then it comes back into the tank, and it's clean. So it's a whole closed-loop system. So it actually uses... Some studies show that it uses 10% of the water that it takes to grow crops. And if you were to compare it to cattle, it's dramatically less, even if you include the water in the tank because it's One of the other things that you focused on in your work on aquaculture is really just painting a picture of where we are in terms of our fish consumption and the amount of fish that we import. Can you share that a little bit more detail on that? the big picture, I guess, on aquaculture. Yeah. So, well, the United States is one of the biggest producers. It is the biggest producer of beef in the world and the second biggest consumer of beef in the world. The highest is Luxembourg, and I'm really not sure why, but they they (laughs) eat a lot of beef in Luxembourg. But then uh, that's also been changing because we're eating more chicken. Um, We also eat a lot of fish. So we're the second or third, depending, but we're in a close tie with Japan second or third in the world in seafood consumption. Uh, China's the first. But with, even with that, our seafood consumption is flatlined over time while we eat more chicken and beef. But, but 
that said, I mean, we still import a lot and eat a lot. So our imports of seafood are huge. They're second only to that of our imports of petroleum. So some have characterized us as fish-dependent in a way that we're oil-dependent. And the imports are largely of farm fish because there's more farm fish being produced in the world than beef at the moment. The and it's, the it's something like 80 or 90 percent of our fish that we import, right? It, it's around there. It's uh, oh, um, That farm fish is about that. It's, a, it's around there. It's about 70 percent okay. of all the fish seafood that we import. Of all of the fish that we import, sorry, of the fish that we consume, guess what we consume the most of? Shrimp. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, exactly. really? <laughs> so it's an important question because we, the shrimp that are being produced in Indonesia largely and in Thailand are being produced in methods. They're just sort of, they're trying to gain as much economic value as they can, but they're destroying mangroves, and there's been a lot of stories about slave labor involved in producing those shrimp. Right. So there is the technology to produce them in recirculating tanks, and we could produce them anywhere in any one of our cities. And, you know, I just wonder if maybe some of the farmers in the Central Valley that don't have access to as much water might be interested in right. starting to... Contributing to that. The, yeah. um, it's also a healthier food, so it's not a bad choice. Yeah, it's it's interesting about shrimp because it's in my own life. I feel like growing up, shrimp was such a treat and such a occasional yeah. thing, and now you see popcorn shrimp and shrimp and you know every it's such an available protein that we're that we're really accustomed to to encountering. Um, and one of the things that has been also been talked about that I've heard you talk about with regard to aquaculture is because of those different environmental standards that apply in different countries you know, that we are really also exporting some of our environmental uh, externalities in the food that we eat and the, in yeah. the, the fish that we consume. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, and it brings us back to the question of regional and local food systems. And I think that they are a key part of being responsive, um, not only to climate resilience, but to increasing transparency in the food system so that you understand uh, how your fish is grown, how your beef is grown, how your chicken's grown, how your, all your food's grown. So, Paula, I want to take a short break and then come back and talk more about your own career, your work, and the founding of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council and the other things that you've been working on. to Knife Show. This is Eating Matters on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. 
All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Welcome back to Eating Matters. We're with Paula Daniels. And Paula, I want to turn now to the other work that you've done. There's a strong thread in your career of taking a really holistic view of issues. And I think that your work with the Los Angeles Food Policy Council and bringing that from an idea to reality is one of the greatest representations of that. And in full disclosure, I am on the leadership board of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, a proud leadership board member, I should say. But I want to hear from you. Uh, you know, we've heard a lot about food policy councils, I think, in the people thinking about food policy issues and food issues. But how did that um, how did that come to you? And how did you at the time that you created it, you were working in the mayor's office as a senior advisor to then mayor Villagrosa. Uh, How did you bring it to reality? Well, first, I want to say, Kim, how glad we are to have you on our leadership board. You well, bring so you. much to it. <laughs> and it's, it's really great to have your experience and background on it. Um, and, you know, actually at the time that um, we started the Food Policy Council, I was a public works commissioner, and I was working on water quality issues in Los Angeles. But I'd always been interested in uh, food policy and agricultural policy for a, a number of reasons in my background. I'd also been looking at water issues um, the ones that I talked about, uh, I was on a, a state board that uh, dealt with agriculture. So I was thinking about those connections that we just talked about and how we can work more together uh, along those lines. In fact, even in the way the drought's playing out now, because it's a, a time of stress, there's a divide being created between urban and agriculture and between the environment and, and farmers. Right. So people in times of stress resort to these kind of polarizing issues as opposed to trying to figure out how to ways to solve the problems together. Right. And that's right, a very traditional kind of dichotomy, right? So Very traditional dichotomy. And actually, in this time of stress that we're seeing now, people are resorting to that. If, you know, the farmers that I mentioned before were talking about environmental protections as being in the way of their own livelihoods, which is not the case, because it's actually a question of the, the, far, the water needs to, to support farmers closer to it as well. So it's farmer versus farmer, not fish versus farmer. Right. And, I mean, and, and then I think in the urban side, you hear people saying, well, why do we need to conserve? Because it's 80%, 80% of water. Right. The ag, <laughs> and then ag pushes back and says it's really 40%. But so how do you get line, past that? Four to one. <laughs> right. Well, and we eat the fruit. We eat the food, right? We all need the food. Right. So, right. How, how, so how do you get past that? Tell us. Yeah. Right. Then that's exactly it. So how do you start divi- bridging those divides and working together? So... Um, there was an opportunity to start looking at food policy. We had the 30th anniversary of farmers markets coming up, um, and as a public works commissioner, I was an appointee and just right down the hall from the mayor's office, and we were talking about how to how to meaningfully celebrate what farmers markets are, which were to bring small and mid-sized farmers um, and their, bring economic benefit to them, but then also bring their food to low-income communities that didn't have a lot of healthy food retail. Um, they didn't have supermarkets in some of those communities. So how do you take that concept of closing that the loop there and make it, bring it into the 21st century and, and bring it to a greater scale? Um, and so out of that, um, we, we created a food policy task force. Mayor Villaraigosa was very interested in the issues, fully supported it, and the task force looked at whether or not there should be a food policy council. So we researched 
food policy councils around the country and looked at what they were doing and came up with our own framework and um, decided, made recommendations to Mayor Virgosa that there should be a food policy council, and he agreed. And then we were we started in January of 2011, and since then we've been bringing people together who are farmers, who are distributors, who are uh, advocates for um, uh, for folks who don't have healthy food access. In other words, they're ad- advocates for for more healthy retail and availability of healthy food. Um, who are at food banks, who are in health departments, so all of those people who work on food issues, but who have been working on different parts of them, we've brought together in one room and have been able to accomplish some things that I'm very proud of. Well, one of the things that I want to talk about that's one of the signature projects of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council is the Good Food Purchasing Pledge and Program. Um, which is a procurement-oriented initiative, and you have talked about it as being similar to a LEED certification, the Green Building Standard, but as applied to food. So can you describe what that program is and what its impact has been? Yeah, the significant thing about it is, and, and this was one of the, the key things that a lot of us, many people, you know, arrived. It's one of those ideas whose time has come when people start thinking that when we want to make changes in the food system, we have to work on a, a much larger Level. We have to work on an individual as well as an institutional level because most of the purchasing of food happens at major institutions. And LAUSD, for example, has a $150 million food budget. I'm sure the food budget in New York is even greater. Yep. So um, a lot of influence can be um, exerted through those purchasing decisions. And how does, the, so, how does the Good Food Purchasing Program accelerate that sort of systems yeah. thinking around food? Yeah. So it has five key values. So that's the thing that's somewhat unique about it. It has five key values that work together. It's uh, local economies, sustainable production, fair labor practices, animal welfare, and health and nutrition. There's a baseline for each of those in terms of purchasing if if an institution is enrolled in it. And then they can get additional points, so they can get a star rating system um, if they choose to do even better in any one of those categories. So a quick example is local economies where um, they would be asked to buy 15%, uh, spend 15% of their budget on local food, and it could be um, any within a certain region in any size farm, but they could get more points if they were to buy from a smaller farm. That's one example. So in that way, it's like lead certification in that they can, in lead certification, there's a number of different categories in which a building could excel. They could get base, basic lead certification or go all the way up to platinum, depending on which, how they want to design their building and which attribute they wanted to highlight. So there's a baseline for the good food procurement policy, but they can do better in any one of those five categories if they wanted to. And in some ways it it's a, provides a way to, to build bridges between these different sectors of the food system. And I think some of the purchasing through the Los Angeles school system is an example of that, where I know that the program has been adopted. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah, and one you know the, we've done, the, we've we've seen great uh, accomplishment with the LA Unified School District in that through this program they've changed their local sourcing from less than ten percent to an average of sixty percent, and as a result, twelve million dollars has been redirected into the local food economy, and one hundred and fifty new jobs were created for processing that food. So that's been terrific on the local economies standpoint. Um, the thing that is different about our good food purchasing program is that we also have labor in it. There's a lot of purchasing programs around the country and even more seem to be developed all the time. Many of them are 
goals. Um, this one has the metrics that I mentioned. It has the five goals that are integrated. All of them must be met. But it also has data verification. So we get the data from the um, good food providers and verify that, in fact, they're doing what, what um, they purport to be doing and are meeting these goals. So I'd love to hear from you. You know, you, you're an attorney. You, at one point, were a trial attorney. You've moved on to be this public official. But what is it about food? What's your own food story? And what pulled you into working on food and water? Well, you know, I think both come from, um, it's hard, it's hard to really know when you arrive at these ideas, if you've kind of always had them. (laughs) I feel like (laughs) I've always had them, but it may be because I'm from Hawaii. And there's a you know, there was a relationship that we had to the land there um, that I derived from my grandparents and my grandfather and the concept, the very uh, important Hawaiian concept of malama, which is stewardship. So I really started off by being very interested in water and the ocean and its impacts. And my dad was raised on a sugar plantation. My grandfather was the maintenance engineer at the Punane Sugar Mill. If you've ever flown to Maui, the Kahului Airport is right there near the Punane Sugar Mill. You'd probably drive right by it, and there's a Costco nearby now. But um, Unfortunately, I never have flown into Maui, Paula, but I'll keep an eye out when <laughs> well, I get one to. one day you might. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll go right by it. So, <laughs> But the thing you wouldn't see as much anymore that I saw when I was little is that Hawaii was covered in sugarcane and pineapple fields. We were an agricultural state when I was there as a young child. Right. So I saw the impacts of agriculture, but also the impacts that we're all trying to rework right now because we were growing a lot of food there, but we weren't eating any of it. It was being exported. It was sugar and it was pineapple. We weren't eating that. Right. In um, fact, and we couldn't eat it. It was being We couldn't even eat the sugar. It was exported to California to be refined and to come back, and then we could buy it at huge prices. Right. So that's the parable of our, our modern food system. Hawaii is now 90% dependent on both oil and food as imports. And now people, they're getting active around changing that food system again. Exactly right. So I recreate the wheel. So in your, in your own time working on these issues, you know, I want to maybe see if I can get you to reflect on that. Yesterday I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., and the new executive director of the White House Initiative on Nutrition and Policy Let's move. Uh, Deb Eschmeyer was talking to the audience and giving really a spirited call to action and saying this is such an unusual moment in the food movement. There's momentum behind these issues, and it's so incredibly hard to build momentum. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but she said, and we have that momentum now. It's time to push the work forward. I'd love to hear from you. Do you agree with that, and, and what, what does that mean for you in your own work? What do you want to see happen? You know, I so agree with that, and I have to tell you how, how really honored I am that you wanted to talk to me on Earth Day as, an, as part of an Earth Day program, because um, when you think about where the food movement is now and think about Earth Day, which was in 1970, Earth Day was um, coming out of an environmental movement that had its roots in the social justice movements of the 1960s. And a lot of momentum was built when the first Earth Day was started to create awareness about environmental issues. And we've seen this very um, robust uh, proliferation of very smart environmental groups doing a lot of good work. Right. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback, but they're still doing a lot of good work. And in the food movement, in the last five years, and it's really been around the time that we started our food policy council work, the number of food policy councils has accelerated 
it's been an exponential growth. So we're at a time when we can really knit a lot of our work together nationally and start thinking more deeply about some of the changes we want to make. I think working on these changes regionally, working on them in your own neighborhoods, your own communities, your own cities, your own areas is absolutely important and the place to start. And then once these um, efforts are linked together nationally, they're even stronger and can cause the type of reorienting of the food system toward a more holistic one that I think we're all interested in accomplishing. Certainly listeners of this network, hopefully all of us, yes. Uh, So Paula, we're just running out of time, but tell us lastly, how has this work affected what you eat uh, and what do you like to cook? (laughs) If anything. You know, (laughs) I, I, I do eat a lot of fish and greens. And the thing about it is that I value the food evermore. I look at food and I think about where it came from and the hands that picked it and the hands that grew it. I value it even more. That's right. That's right. Well said. So that is going to bring us to the end of this episode. That's Paula Daniels. She's the founder of the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, among many other important roles uh, with regard to food and government. Um, Paula, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Kim. It's been, I, I really appreciate it. Really a pleasure to have you. This is also the last episode of our second season. So thanks to Talia Rolf, our assistant producer for this season. Talia, it's been a real pleasure to work with you. She's sitting here with me now. I want to thank Tim Archer for our show music and a thank you to all of our sponsors and to the network. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher and here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kim Kessler and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.